All right, Richard. The next generation. Yeah. They're not using the Romulans. They're not using the Romulans. They're not using the Klingons. They're, they're using the Klingons. Worf well, Worf, Klingon. but you know, not, not as an enemy. Not as an enemy yet. And now we have the enemy of the next generation. It's the Ferengi. How and do you feel about that? I really want my money back right now because... Don't you? I Yeah. I, I, I thought the Ferengi were so much better than they are, hor- and they're horrible. They're pretty much the worst. Like, they're not even... I would rather see the Orions from the animated series Orion episode. I would rather see, I don't know, Tribbles again, or... The Ferengi are interesting because... And, and we're talking about... Are they about, now? Okay. <laughs> we're, we're talking about the last outpost, which is the introduction of the Ferengi. Because they were designed to be the threat of the series. Yeah, and in the very first episode, they have this offhand mention as... Um, right, an encounter with, at Yeah, point. Riker says something like, you know, oh, well, you know, the, the guy's like bluffing and say, oh, well, I'll talk to the Ferengi. Yeah, well, you know, what is it? Like, they'd like to, you know... He said something about I hope they find you as delicious yeah. as they did. They're like, it implies that they will kill and eat you if they deal with you, and... Which is a shocking bit of continuity for, for this era, but... The interesting thing about the Ferengi, I find, is that they they obviously were designed to to be the threat of this series, and I, I I really fundamentally don't understand how they could have believed that that was going to be accepted by anyone because they are patently ridiculous oh, in God. this episode. I mean, they're 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 called Yankee traders, <laughs> which sounds ridiculous. They're stooping over with whips and acting like monkeys with their hands and weird forms and so here's the thing like they're they're stupid like it just there's nothing threatening about them whatsoever and i just i i don't understand why they thought that this was going to work they're built up and it reminds me a lot of balance of terror in a lot of ways because again you have a species that Nobody in the Federation has really seen that they don't really know about that there are all these rumors about. I mean, and they finally get visual confirmation of them, and that scene is done ve- built up very similarly to how Balance of Terror built up the Romulans. And yet, again, the Romulans number one didn't look as ridiculous as the Ferengi, and frankly, I think the acting was a little better in Balance of Terror. Um, the characterization of them as uh, the you know the Romulans are very noble almost they are very you know it, you know they're a little warrior poetish uh, not completely at that point in time but and the Ferengi they seem almost like you know I, I think about the they're just kind of these insectile space pirate kind of things like from Metroid like they're just like you know and yeah they're hissing and yeah they, they... they're 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 totally they're they they're tr- especially at the end when Riker is talking to the old dude and he they're basically swatting them away like you would mosquitoes like they 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 become such a non-threat by the end of the episode that I don't know how can you they they, they seem like hyenas like jackals almost they're not lions yeah I mean it, it, it's interesting because like there's there's one scene where they beam down to the planet and and like two of them jump on wharf or something and he sort of just goes ah and knocks them off and it's yeah and you have data like holding them up he's like oh they're kind of strong you know yeah and it just it just seems very very strange and what what I don't understand about even the look of the Ferengi is that 
you know, I, I, I think that you could make a case for the Ferengi design being threatening if yeah. they were not directed to act in the manner that yes. they were directed to act. It, like they, they, that, that close-up scene, that original when, – when they're talking to the captain of the Ferengi ship, like that, that was very well done. Well, like, and, well, and you have these close-ups of these horrible teeth and, you know – He's very, again, reptilian, and he's threatening and creepy in that scene. But then again, when you actually meet them. Well, I think it's interesting because, of course, you know, the Ferengi are short. Like, they're they're significantly shorter than, yeah. than the average, uh, you know, crew member on the Enterprise. And the, the view screen scenes were obviously supposed to... Uh, make us think that the Ferengi were were zooming in a lot to make yeah. them look bigger and look more threatening. Actually, that makes sense. They mention like, oh, there was that. There's something weird about. It. I didn't. I didn't click on that till you mentioned it. But yeah, yeah. And and there's also that that line that Troy has. I mean, Troy doesn't have many lines in this episode, but but one of the lines she does have is that she can't sense anything from the Ferengi. So, ooh, what does that mean? You know, um, we don't know what their mental state is. We don't know if they're angry. We don't know if they're happy. We don't know if they're gassy. Like we don't know anything about them, right? Yeah, and you know, what just, does that turn out to be? Is that where they able to shield from? There's, or is there it, a tech? That it's they kind have? of established later that there are certain, like I think, four lobed aliens or something. Betazoids can't read for whatever reason. So the Ferengi okay. just physically are not; they're not able to read them for whatever reason. Okay. And, you know, I think that you could, I mean, the Ferengi do look a bit ridiculous, but I think if you had cast, you know, normal average height actors as Ferengi and they just acted like, you know, villains as opposed to strange yeah, monkey like, hyenas, I think that they could have worked. But for they whatever more reason, they went than violent. They should be violent. They should be yeah. scary. They can be monsters. You can have a race of bloodthirsty pirates as as a, an effective villain you know of course they're psychotic you know that would be great but these are again they're they're just they're they're small fry you know they act like small fry yeah right and the other thing too i think it's weird about the ferengi is that they have these whip things which just makes me think of the circus oh and i so- love those whip things i would want uh, that would be my weapon of choice if i were like like playing like if i were in the star trek world because that's so cool I don't know. It looked cool to me. It, it just, would be a very good video game weapon. But it doesn't seem practical. And well, when, whips are never practical. They just look cool. When you have an enemy that's supposed to be the main, like is, you're <laughs> setting it up to be the main adversary of, of this TV show, I think you need them to be practical weapons. See, here's you know? the thing. Like I, you know, and, and you, I can see seeing this episode for the first time and having this reaction and realizing that again they 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 fumbled on their very first appearance but i know of you know what i know of the ferengi is that they are a race and that they are a major race within the mythos but they were never like when you think of series antagonists for next generation you think of the borg and you know i know so little about the borg but from what i know they are an effective series villain they sure. are threatening they are a terrifying you know so i i i guess it's it's funny, like, they, they it seems, I, from the beginning, I know this is not going to work out, so it's almost funny to see it failing as it's happening. Yeah, it almost seems like a waste of time if, yeah. you, if you know where it's going. The funny thing is, though, about the Ferengi, and I, I want to talk about the Ferengi more, but I, I kind of want to go into the episode a little bit, because yeah. I, I do find 
you know, the first 20 or 25 minutes when the Enterprise is, is, is chasing the Ferengi ship and they're chasing it because the Ferengi stole like a power converter or something that the Enterprise wants back. It, it doesn't. This re- is an f- original series episode. Let's, let's yeah, be very clear on this. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think even in the way the set is used on the planet, this is an original series. Episode. And I think I think you're seeing that. Yeah, M- most of these early episodes are are very much in, in the in the style of the original series. Yeah, again, you said that before going in, and I know I I immediately know exactly what you mean by that. Yeah, um, and you know what I find interesting about the beginning of the episode, and is that the Ferengi do come across as threatening. Yeah, you know we we have this buildup is a little too much. Like I think this episode should have been trimmed. But yeah, as far as again, it was it, they built it up similarly that they did the Romulans. Well, well, the episode the episode definitely has problems, and the episode yeah. is, is is not oh, very yeah. good, and we'll get into why. But you know, I think you know we have the Ferengi. You know, the the Enterprise thinks that they're being attacked by this this weapon that is draining their power, and they're they're very threatened by the Ferengi, and they think the Ferengi are yeah. are uh, you know a grave threat to them. And since we don't know what the Ferengi look like, and we don't know anything about the Ferengi, I think you do get something similar to Balance of Terror with the Romulans, yeah. where. They do seem threatening, and as they do seem they know, like they're putting the ship in danger. Yeah, as, as far, far as, as they, they know, know, they they have this. I mean, they make it clear, data makes it clear at the beginning. You know, they may be equal in technology than us, but there are some areas, you know, that there is different, and they could genuinely figure like, all right, well, they have one technology that hap- we happen to be very weak to. I mean, and they've they've got us by the balls right now. You know that that's, and I think it's funny because when you have the when they finally do communicate with the Ferengi ship and it becomes, you know, they're saying, oh, we want to discuss surrender and the Ferengi think, you know, all right, all right, well, surrender, but this is how we're going to do, you know, you can picture another episode happening in the, in the Ferengi ship that's the exact same thing about the Federation because they're just as scared of the Federation. And that does take the episode into an interesting turn that Balance of Terror is the first step in. This is, okay, well, then there's a third thing. I think, but I think I think that's you've said something interesting there. Is that Picard is contacting the Ferengi to surrender, and the Ferengi think that he is contacting them for the Ferengi surrender? Yeah, to, to ask for their surrender. But the interesting thing I think there is that I don't think that Kirk's Enterprise or the Romulans would I, either one of them would have surrendered, no. right? And I think that's an interesting. This is distinction. the second time, at least, that Picard has surrendered in the face of superior firepower. He did that in the pilot. Yeah. Whereas Kirk was very much a man of action and a man that was going to figure something out. I mean, if Picard had been in control of the of the original series Enterprise in the Corbinite maneuver, you know, he would have surrendered to to Baylock's ship in the first fifteen minutes. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. That's that's completely true. And I don't know that that's a. I don't know well, that that's a great character choice for Picard. I have to say there's something interesting, uh, I, though I noticed, is at one point when he's set talking to the uh, to the Ferengi ship or whatever, he gives Riker a look for approval and Riker nods. Like, it's this very quick moment between the two of them, but suddenly it becomes very clear Picard is not as sure of himself. Like, that's one of the things that I am finding very clear about his character is he is very much a new captain. Like, this is his—he is competent, certainly. He is very talented. He, you know, he knows all of these things. His crew is starting to be loyal to him for good reasons. But 
he's all he's not a hundred percent there yet. I don't think he's. And I think that's I think that's an interesting read on Picard because I I want you to remember that when we get to you know other episodes yeah. because that's very much. I'll just say that that's probably not accurate, but I think it's interesting that that's how you're seeing him in these early episodes. Well, again, considering especially how he, you know, talks to, you know, the relationship he has to Riker is Riker is the one who's okaying everything right now. And again, maybe later on that, you know, downplays as, you know, Picard just needs some more time. You know, he's he's obviously going to grow into a legendary captain, certainly, but... Again, that first conversation between him and Riker where he says he, – he makes it clear like I need you to be you know, making sure that if, – if I'm making a wrong decision, I need to know this. Like he, know, he feels maybe a little too humble for his position right now. Well, I think Riker is, is, is probably the, the most interesting character in these early episodes that we've seen because he is the closest to a Kirk that we have. And yeah. what I find interesting about that is – Riker is a man of action. Riker is a man of impulse. Riker makes decisions quickly. And... Riker's not going to enjoy being a captain in this version of the Federation. Well, that's what I was about to yeah. say. You know, 70 years ago, the Federation and Starfleet seemed to value that and, and make that sort of a character a captain. And in, in, in this version of Starfleet, they don't seem to value that, and they make men like Picard captain of their flagships, which, you know... I mean, I, to I, be fair, they... Argue, you know, Riker is the second in command of this flagship, and it is very clear that he's very, you know, he's much younger. You know, this is he's in the beginning of his career still. But I don't think he's supposed to be much younger than Kirk was when he was made captain of the Enterprise, which is fair, and that could be a more peaceful Federation would promote more slowly. I mean, if you are in a more war-ish scenario as Kirk was, um. I mean, there was a war with the Romulans not that long, you know, actually, no, would, would people in Kirk's, they wouldn't have been in the Romulans, it would have been fathers and grandfathers, never mind. Um, you know, I think in Kirk's time, you had more opportunities to pr- prove yourself and be promoted, simply. And, you know, again, 70 years later, the galaxy's more charted, it's a lot more settled, and so, you know, in peacetime, military becomes very bureaucratic, and so the Federation might be a little more, too. And I, I, I think, and this is something that other people have said, but you know, I want to let's see where this goes. I think what you're, what we're finding in these early episodes of the Next Generation is, just as the original series was a product of the '60s and a product of that idealism, and even a product of that idea that America could intervene in in overseas conflicts and and do well, right, like. That is what America should do. That is the right thing to yeah. do. And so what Kirk did in the original series was always very much of that mind, right? And of yeah, that yeah, sort yeah, of yeah, style yeah. of command. You and see what a planet which is, you know, controlled by a computer, you can destroy that computer. Right. And that's very much tied to to how America operated in its foreign policy in the sixties. And I think what you're seeing in the next generation is almost the complete reverse of that, which is, you know, this is, this is made, this show is being made in an America, which lost the Vietnam war, which had a a terrible economic malaise in the 1970s, you know, which was right at the time where the cold war was about to end, but nobody really knew that. Yeah. And so what I find interesting about that is 
it seems like it's a very different show because of the time that it's made in and what what the federation values in the next generation it seems like and and, and what starfleet values is is not that and is you know this is this is a show made in an atmosphere where we have been chastened and we know that you know intervening in foreign conflicts is not the thing to do i mean think back to last week uh with code of honor and the prime directive yeah well the yeah the prime directive in the original series that's more of a you know you need to play fair you can't fuck with a civilization that isn't as good as we are like you know you need to find your equal in this, it's almost a mandated cultural relativism. Like, we may find the Code of Honor to have a lot of legitimate flaws. You know, their culture may be immoral, but according to the Prime Directive, you're not allowed to say that. And and let's think about the end of this episode, because what we yeah. have in this episode is very interesting. It turns out, of course, that the beam is not from the Ferengi, and it's coming from the planet. It's a planet that was in this empire that collapsed 600,000 years yeah, ago. It's, ha- and the, and it's half specifics... Metron's, half Star Trek V, which I thought was a very, you know, <laughs> yeah. unusual combination. And, you know, it turns out it was the Takan Empire, which is kind of a terrible name, but whatever. It's not that important. Um, and there's this sort of, like, I don't know, computer program kind yeah. of thing that is is doing something. And it's never really explained. And it's a very sort of, like... Yeah, it's an original series guest star. We need to end the episode. And uh. so we're going to end the episode, and you know, with an actor in bad makeup. And, you know, what I find interesting about that is, you know, we're talking a lot about sort of this, you know, how this is different from the original series. And oh, yeah. I think one of the key differences here is, remember that line, I think Data says... Where, you know, and it's, I'm, I'm not super clear on what exactly the Takan computer program was, was trying to do. I think yeah, he was. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what question he was asking or what Riker answered, but it was the right one. And as soon as, as soon as Riker gave an answer, he was like, sure, okay, cool, you're, we're all friends now. But what I think is interesting is think back to the line that Data had where he said something about, well, we don't, you know, we don't interfere. We don't do that. Like, we've let the strong defeat the weak and overtake the weak we've let really bad things happen because we don't believe that it's our place to intervene that is very different from the original series well it's very you know one of the things i think is very interesting about i mean i joke about arena but this is very similar to arena and i think one of the clearest ways that it's different from the original series is Kirk has to fight the Gorn. He has to go through this adventure and he has to realize, no, I have to rise above that instinct. And what uh, what pleases the Metrons is that they see humanity beginning to make these steps and beginning to have a mature adult race philosophy. And in this, it's 70 years later and Riker barely needs to think to come up with essentially the same answer that, look, no, you know, they need to develop on their own terms. And obviously that's still a good answer for the computer. We can we can figure that the series believes that that sort of answer is a moral absolute. But it's less of a test now because now that I, the fact, you know, humanity doesn't even need to think about that answer anymore. Yeah, no, exactly. That's a good point. And it, it kind of indicates that, you know, perhaps they're correct. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't I don't know that I, I think it's an open question whether or not the prime directive is is moral. Right. Of but course. in 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 universe, I think the prime directive yeah, is. 
I don't know that it's supposed to be moral, and I don't know that it's supposed to be immoral. Well, it's, I think it's it's eth- it's it's neither moral nor immoral. It is a system of ethics rather than a system of morality. Yeah, and I think they, you know, they, I think ethically you can make a very strict case for saying no. You do not have the right to judge another culture because there is no moral absolute in this world. And I think it goes further than judging, though, right? Because you know what I what I think is interesting here is it's really in these early episodes we're seeing this we're seeing Starfleet and 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 the the Society of the Federation kind of use inaction as an answer to uncertainty because they don't they've seen what happens if you intervene in a conflict or intervene in a society and you don't have all the answers and you don't know everything that's going on and it may end badly and it may not. So they've decided that the, the ethical thing to do is not to intervene at all and to take no action. And I don't know that I agree with that, but I think that that is a valid response. And I think that that is an interesting difference from the original series. And I think it colors it colors this in a it's, very weird light. It's almost less optimistic in a way in that it's... It's a little cynical. Yeah, in that it's saying that, you know, the original series says that, you know, you put the best of the best into the situation and they're going to come up with the right answer. Um, the original series is a series which believes that God exists and therefore believes that absolute morality does exist. The next generation does not believe in God, and the next generation does not believe in moral absolutes. Again, and then it says – again, it, it, it's a system of ethics which says that we can't intervene. It's wrong to intervene and that – you know, I think if Kirk looks back at his career – He's going to see Khan. He's going to see all of these things that he kind of didn't make the right decision. But I think he would justify all of them by saying, at the time, I thought this was the right thing to do. At the time, something needed to be done. And no matter what, the good that I've done over my career, because Kirk has undoubtedly done a shitload of good, um, has outweighed any mistakes he's made. And therefore, the, the immoral and unethical choice was to do nothing. In other words, the following the prime directive was unethical for Kirk in the original series. And here following the prime direct, um, breaking the prime directive for Picard, again, breaking the prime directive means something different in both cases, but for Picard, it means putting the Federation values onto a society, which does not need, is not obligated to subscribe to them. Yeah. And I think you see that with the end of the episode yeah. and, and, and the reaction that the Federation and the Takan have to the Ferengi, right? Because I think one of the reasons why the Takan representative lets them all go is because he does see that the Federation is 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 able and willing to not interfere with the Ferengi and and say, okay, well, we'll let you go because of that. You know something? Yeah. When the computer says, you know, do you want me to destroy the Ferengi? I didn't get the sense that he would have been upset to, to, to do that. Like... You know, I think he is legitimately giving Riker the right, like, you know, this race may be just insects, you know, when he says they may come and, you know, kill you again, you know, they may get stronger than, you know, they're going to fuck up your shit. Um, Obviously trying to set up that they would be a recurring villain, but very ineffectively, um, they're a recurring gnat. But, um, you know, when he says that Riker's answer, like, no, let him go, I don't care, you know, is interesting. I think he genuinely means that because I think for the computer – 
leaving them alone or destroying them are equally amoral in the sense that it's a neutrally moral thing. Yeah. The Ferengi are, as the next episode makes clear, there are so many species that to specifically value one is a bit of arrogance. It doesn't really matter to the larger view whether the Ferengi live or die. No, I would agree with that. And I think I think that's interesting, right? Because I think yeah. that the show as written would not take that that would would not take that position with the Federation, certainly. Oh no, then that's that's the thing, you know, if the Ferengi are going to be just a little bug race that lives for a few thousand years more and then just dies out and gets extinct and nobody remembers their name, as happened to the Dakan Empire. Again, that episode makes it very clear that even the greatest of empires can be so long dead that nobody knows their name. Um, that can happen to the Ferengi and nobody would miss them. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's interesting that that the show sets up the Ferengi because I do want to get a little bit more into the Ferengi before we wrap this episode up. You know, I think the Ferengi as portrayed, you know, it's it's very intriguing to me because they're set up as what 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 data calls Yankee traders. They're they're kind of Riker sees them as a, a an earlier version of humanity when they were worried about. I'm surprised the word pirates wasn't really explicitly used well, because not. I thought that's what they were supposed to eventually be like. I don't know that they were supposed to be pirates as much as they were supposed to be like the I... kind of the kind of mercantilism that would you know protectionism and. You, you, you use the... military force to not not to destroy people or to kill people. You use it to make money. See, and I that's kind the... of what the Ferengi, I think, were supposed to be. I got the sense they were like a sleazy version almost of, you know, kind of the mafia or something like that. Again, just going as in a little more along the, hey, kid, you want to buy a watch kind of thing. Like, I've, you know, I figure it's I, – I always got the sense they were a complete race of crooks who – you know, but not doing anything horrible. You know, again, it's a, a race of Harry Muds, basically. That's a yeah. That's a good uh, way to put it. Cyrano Jones and Harry Mud, and that's what the Ferengi are. And it's interesting, of course, that the Ferengi are supposed to be so much below humans at this point. Because yeah. if there were humans like the Ferengi seventy years ago, what does that say about the Ferengi, and what does that say about where you know humanity is in this era? Yeah. Um. The Ferengi will be developed more as the show goes on. And, you know, it's really in the series that the mythos gets more solidified, really, like the world, as far as I know, like, because this is already a much more defined world than the original series was. Yeah, we'll talk about that because I think that's interesting. You're you're getting a sense more of world building in, in these early episodes. I mean, we do have the benefit of having two series and how, how many movies do we see? Six movies that we've seen. Uh, and so, the, I mean, this is very much the next step of that. It's, it, didn't re, it didn't throw out the original series Bible. It built on that. But again, they're making so much of a clear distinction of this is what the Federation is in this day and age. They have gone very clear to show the differences in this new version of the Federation. And remember in the first in the first season especially, we... I kept having that question, what is the Federation? Is it a military? Is it civil? You know, I think we have a much better idea of what this is now. I mean, I would see it as a... It seems a little more even like the Peace Corps right now. Yeah. With much greater technology. Like, the Peace Corps with military-grade technology. That's basically what I think the Federation is at this point in time. Yeah. Well, Starfleet is. Starfleet, yeah. And I, I, I... 
I don't get the distinction between the two of them, but that's more, you know, I'm stupid. Um, <laughs> now, you, you, um, you said it. I know. Um, I think well, the, the last thing uh, I want to say about this episode is I, I do find it interesting that for all of its sort of vaunted um, morality surrounding the, the exaltation of humanity, they're not above playing a cheap trick on the Ferengi because there's this weird, there's this weird scene in the oh, conference room. Yeah. And this is, and this is, is cool. This supposed to be a theme that like, I felt like it was a motif that didn't get used for anything. Well, this is, <laughs> well, this is interesting, right? Because, okay, so we have the first conference room scene, which becomes a thing in, in, in uh, the next generation that the conference room scenes are legendary and, you know, shit goes down there all the time. And, uh, you know, Data is uh, giving a, a presentation on the Well, Tacon there's these Empire. two random kids who are just in the... Well, uh, yeah, that's And then but... Riker's, oh, you little scams. What? And so they left this toy there, yeah. But Data has this, like, Chinese finger trap, <laughs> and he's got his finger stuck in there, and it's... It, we don't know why, like, what is going on here. And it turns out that it's actually a setup for a joke at the end of the episode yeah, where I thought it was Riker a... wants to get permission to beam a box of the Chinese finger traps over to the Ferengi. And so what I find interesting about that is, yes, humanity is exalted and humanity is so much better than the Ferengi and they're, they're, they're moral and they have all these highfalutin ideas about what the world and the, the galaxy should be, but they're not above a cheap trick. Well, that's exactly what happened at the end of the Tribble episode, if you remember. That's true. See, it just seemed like a perfect metaphor for cooperation because when you're pulling the fingers apart... You get stuck and you go nowhere, but you push the fingers together and then you're able to... Like, I thought they were going to do something along those lines. Like, that's what a... Cause I'm it, glad they did it. No, but I mean, it would have at least used the symbol. Like, it, it's a symbol for nothing in the end, but... Three Chinese finger traps. I would give this three... I would give it four because I really enjoyed our discussion about the morality that it spurred on. Okay. Well, let's move on to our next episode for this week, where no one has gone before. And it's interesting. So this is Wesley. Yes. This is a Wesley episode. This is the episode where Wesley is revealed to be a savant-level genius. Okay, so here's the thing. I hate Wesley, but I actually really, really liked this episode. Like, I thought this was a really fun episode. I think that this is the best episode that we have seen so far. I, I yeah, I'm with you. I know I I can see this not being like one of the that like is, I see this being one of the first early good episodes rather than one of the best episodes of the series. It's very much damning with faint praise. Yes. But it's it's not a bad episode and I think what what I find interesting about it is it's the first episode that feels different than the original series. Because it yeah. is a riff on where no man has gone before, where the Enterprise went to the edge of the galaxy. And there and... have been the episode with the supercomputer where they have an engineer going in to soup up the Enterprise and it fucks up. Uh, it's a very similar plot to that. Oh, t- yeah, to the um, – what is that episode called? I don't remember. But I thought the, it was called the, the Ultimate Computer. The Ultimate Computer, yeah, the Duotronic Computer. Yeah, and you know, and funny thing, I don't think this has been said yet, but uh, Data is supposed to be Positronic, so oh. it's a little, yeah. Um, but it's not bad. Like, it's, it's, 
it's written well. I think that, you know, you get your asshole guest star, which is fine. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's something that Star Trek loves to do. <laughs> and it's, it's all fun. It gives, it gives our, what I like about it is it gives all the characters a chance to rally around and, and sort of have not an enemy, but sort of like this asshole adversary for all of them all to roll their eyes at. Um, well, it's, it's funny because, you know, you talk about how there's no conflict among the crew. I really actually like the handling of the guest star character because he makes i think this is a very interesting episode on a character level with and there is a lot of very interesting subtext to this episode i think the i think Kaczynski is what Wesley can become because you very much get the sense that when Kaczynski was a kid he was probably just as smart about engines and stuff he was the kid who geeked out and hung out in the engine room of wherever he was wanting he understood this from a very early age he's turned out to have a much higher estimation of his abilities than he really has but See, i i i disagree i kind of got an almost completely different really? read on kaczynski okay. I, I considered him a con man and i considered him someone who wasn't that smart and wasn't able to realize that his formula was junk and wasn't doing anything and got to the position that he was because of like dumb luck and some sort of interpersonal skill which is weird because he's a total asshole but i what the sense that i get with him is that this traveler i assumed probably met kaczynski at around the age that he was you know around wesley's age and maybe kaczynski was initially extremely talented and this see it it all hinges on the scene where uh the traveler's talking to picard and says you need to encourage you know wesley what he has what he is is very special but you can't let him know he's a genius he very specifically says like that i get the sense kaczynski has been told from a very early age that he was a genius maybe even when the traveler met him he went off about you know oh that's you know you're really super smart and yeah the traveler probably was kaczynski's mentor his teacher he hung out with him but as kaczynski got more praised it's not in the nature of the traveler to actively say that he's doing what he's doing you know that he's the brains behind the operation so i think he's seen kaczynski become corrupt and full of himself that's probably part of the reason he is so insistent that wesley be kept pure from that when you see that because yeah, maybe. What, the scene that I found the most interesting was when Skazinski is first saying, you know, you know, I can't explain that. And, you know, the chief engineer, number two, uh, says like, oh, because it's so beyond us. And he's like, no, I'm not a teacher. And, you know, and I, I that's a very telling moment because, you know, if Kaczynski had had this idea that he was so beyond himself, you know, he may have said, like, yeah, you know, you're just a peon. I'm just, I'm this guy, you know. I think he very specific, that's the first flaw that Kaczynski mentions. When Kaczynski has it definitely proven to him, maybe he didn't even realize that the Traveler was doing all of this. The Traveler may have even not let it on to him that he was that, you know, much more evolved than that. When he realizes he is humble towards the end of the episode, you know, the he asked to assist the Traveler. He's acting as the assistant at the end of the episode. 
I think I think that's an interesting read on the character. I, I I don't know that I completely agree. That's fair. I mean, I think a lot of his is just extrapolation based on you know sort of scanty evidence in the episode. But well, you know. But what I you know and 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 I I think I disagree with you a little bit because you know obviously you know we'll we'll talk about the Wesley savant level genius reveal and and, and what that means, um, but. The Traveler doesn't strike me as the kind of person who would attach himself to someone like Kaczynski. Because, you know, Kaczynski just doesn't seem smart s- enough to the tra- for, for the Traveler to have latched on to. Well, and, you're seeing him again at age 50. Well, right, at age but... age 15, uh, let see, me here's, put it this way. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. The Traveler very much says to Wesley, oh, that's, you know, he's like, he's he's encouraging him a little yeah. bit. He's sort of working on the warp field. And the Traveler is saying to, to Picard later on in the episode, you know, like you said, don't tell Wesley he's a genius. Don't tell him that he is smart like this. Just treat him like a normal teenager and encourage yeah. him, but but kind of leave a lot of that information aside. And what I think is interesting there is Wesley knows almost immediately. You can tell that he knows that the Traveler is actually doing this. And so yeah. if Kaczynski doesn't know that the Traveler is the one who is actually doing this, I think that that means that Kaczynski isn't as smart as Wesley. And he would never have picked up on that even as a teenager if the environment that the, the Traveler and Kaczynski met in is at all similar yeah. to, to how Wesley and the Traveler meet. And I so I just don't get that. I mean, maybe the Traveler works with what he finds. I get the sense but, that but Kaczynski he, peaked. I but mean, he I get... really, the Traveler really seems to indicate that savant-level geniuses of Wesley's talent are incredibly rare. Yeah. You know, he even implies that there may only be a handful of them in the galaxy. Kaczynski doesn't strike me so as why one Kaczy- of the handful. But then, then again, that other question is why Kaczynski? I feel like, again... I don't know. and I At think age, that- like, 15, the Traveler met him, and he may have been as talented as Wesley. You get the sense that Wesley has a lot even further to go, that he's not, you know, he's only going to get stronger. What if Krasinski is being told, oh, you're this genius, you're this genius, and I figure he got lazy and he got soft. Well— He's not being—after a while, I think— We can try and come up with an— Yeah. We can try and come up with an answer to fit the facts, but I think what the real answer is is I don't think the script— Yeah. I don't think the script writer realized that that was a problem. And like, that's fair. I don't think that 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 he realized that putting Kaczynski and the Traveler together would raise these questions. Because on the other hand, I mean, on the other hand, yeah, it could be as simple as, you know, the Traveler wants to be anonymous, and Kaczynski is all too happy to take all of the credit and say, "Oh, that's my meek little assistant. Don't bother with him." You know, may, it may just be as simple as that. Maybe he does hang out with arrogant assholes just because he doesn't have to. Almost like the Spock thing, where you know I like being num- I like being the second in command because then I'm not really in the hot seat, you know. That could be, yeah. Well, I think this episode is interesting when you compare it to Shore Leave because the scenes where the hallucinations are becoming real is very similar. But number one, it's not as elaborate in Shore Leave. It's just a series of really interesting quick scenes. Um, and they were all well done, um, but it does them to a much larger purpose. Shore Leave was full of just these random silly things, you know. Oh, I'm chased by a knight. I see the, you know, whatever. 
gives, not not all though, because Kirk's was legitimately like a character course. motivator. But all of the main characters get character motivators. You see, you know, War for a second, and he's finally starting to get things to do. Um, he sees this like warthog thing, and then suddenly, like, we've only seen him as like, oh, I'm Warf, you know. He's having this very strong emotional reaction of essentially seeing his boyhood dog. Um, you know, Tosh, which makes no sense with later information, but oh, that's you know. well. Um, you know, Tosh Yar has been talking about these rape gangs, and for a minute, we actually see her being attacked by a rape gang, and that we see her about to be attacked by a rape. Yeah, gang. let's let's make that clear. That's, we don't actually see her getting yeah, raped. true. Um, and no, and also she wasn't doing a great job at hiding. Yeah, and. You know, and yeah, having an animal that makes noise. Um, either way, and also knowing what we know about her, I doubt that the rape gang got through without any injuries. You know, she did fight, but we see what a, a brief moment of what her life as a teenager was like, and that's a very interesting scene. You see Captain Picard talking to his mother, and yeah, what is that about? That, I loved that scene because she, yeah, that indicates it's half his. It's it's. This nice little, you know, she obviously had an upper class upbringing. You know, they have a nice tea set. She's very, you know, regally, aristocratically dressed and, you know, her bearing. Um, And it's in the middle of just the corridor of the ship. And she's saying all these weird philosophical things. Um, You and, and... so all of them are... Well, I don't ve- want to move away from that yet because, okay. uh, you know, I think that's really telling that Picard sees his mother. Yeah. Uh, where... You know, I don't well, know Well, he's it- not a womanizer like Kirk is. You know, Kirk That seen, is true. You know, women and... Kirk sees women. Kirk sees boyhood enemies. He seems like... like Picard seems as much... I mean, at this point, we have... Well, if you, if you take... You know, I don't know where you were going with that because I interrupted you, but... You bastard. If... If we take at least some of the uh, illusions or hallucinations as motivating, you know, key motivating factors in the characters' lives, and I'm willing to say that. I don't know if it's true, but it's an interesting thought exercise. You know, obviously Tasha Yar's rape gang experience was very instrumental in making yeah. her the woman that she is. And she gets that—I mean, she gets that—I don't know why Worf sees his—again, sees his pet, but that Probably is because they were like, know, hey, we'll, we have a warthog on the set this week. Let's dress it up yeah, like a Yeah, exactly. Um, um, you know, but, Yar clicks on to that, the thought of pet, and she remembers this cat, and the cat triggers the rape gang memory. Like, it's a—it's a, it's a small chain that leads her to that. We are—you know— we obviously, you know, it's told that thought manifests itself. So yeah, again, that's obviously her train of thought. She thinks about an animal she had so, that connection with. So why, why in the world was Picard thinking about his mother at that because moment? I get the sense that he's stressed. He doesn't really understand what's going on, and it's a very interesting. Uh, you almost get the sense that when he was younger. You know, he would come home, he would come to his mother with a problem, she would pour him a cup of tea, and, you know, I get the sense that he looked up to her, that he appreciated her wisdom, and that she gave him good advice each time. Maybe he just simply wants mom's advice on this really scary situation, because, let's face it, Star Trek V made a big deal about getting to the center of the galaxy. This is so much further than that. This is billions of light years away. They are as far from anything as... They can be. He wants to go home. Home and is incarnated in his mother. 
Does he want to have sex with his mother? Everybody does. Um, it's also interesting how they do make, you know, his French lineage important to him. And he gets, he's very ar- almost arrogant about it. And she is impossibly French. You know, she yeah. is, you know, he calls her maman, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and we didn't mention this, but in the last outpost, he has a weird line about the, the French more properly blue, red and white. Or yeah. Whatever. And, 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 he, he says married at one point. And, yeah. And, and I love that. Like data starts going into the other flags and, you know, and Picard's offended because, like, how dare you talk about another country? We've talked about France. That's about as far as we need to go. So I think that that I, I think that that paints Picard in an interesting yeah. light. Then, and it makes him a more interesting captain. Well, as I said, he's unsure of himself. I think he still that needs mommy's advice. I think that that makes him. I don't know if he needs the advice, but I think it's it I, helps I think, him, and he certainly doesn't. It doesn't hurt him. I think what what that indicates, and, and I think what the preceding episodes sort of have danced around and what we've danced around, is that Picard is a captain who is decisive, but prefers to have advice before he makes a decision. Well, that's it. In that episode, was it, in, it was in the first episode, he calls everybody in and says, you know, I want your opinions, and he... Even calls Riker out, like you know, he's like, "No, you didn't give me one." Like, I mean, you know. even even going back to to encounter at Farpoint, I don't think that he immediately makes the decision to separate the Enterprise. I think that that is yeah. an idea that comes to him from from War for Tashiar or somebody. Um, and so I find that I find that intriguing. That paints him as a more deliberative captain. Yeah, I that's think. right. If I remember correctly, like she immediately says, "Like, oh, we should fire on them," and he's like, "No, we're not going to do that. Give me a real answer." And she thinks, and then she basically. That's when she says, well, look, we've got civilians on board. We need to do something if I, I believe that was the context of that. Yeah. And, you know, he does say a very genuine, sincerely grateful thank you for your opinions. You know, when they leave, um, you get the sense that he really does take every idea into consideration because, you know, he's one of those leaders who has a cabinet because, you know, he's – he trusts all of those people. He trusts that those people are in their positions because they deserve to be in their positions and because the role of an advisor is to advise and the role of a leader is to synthesize that advice into action. Yeah. Rather than, you know, the role, you know, Picard does not want to be surrounded by yes men. Kirk didn't either, but Picard really doesn't. Yeah, Picard doesn't want that. And I think, you know, it's interesting because he points out, I think in the last episode, it was that he points out that Riker didn't give any input. And I think that's interesting because Picard wants input from everybody. He wants to hear all opinions and all sides of an issue. Riker in particular is the advice that will get him to humble himself and not run headlong into danger because I'm the captain. That's what I got to do. You know, Riker's the one who's, you know, Picard is ready to go down with the ship. Riker is the one who's going to tell him when it's appropriate to and when, no, you're just being a drama queen. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, some of that has to do with the fact that this is much more of an ensemble 80s yeah. drama, right? They want to give everybody their opportunity to shine and, and they want to give everybody their moment. Um, but I think also some of it is, you know, again, look at where, you know, American culture was in the late eighties and, you know, think about even things like with, with business, for example, right? Like the enterprise almost is kind of corporate in that way. And, you know, what I, you know, think about like what was happening in, in, in America in the 1980s, Japan was was taking over, right? And everybody felt like Japan was taking over and Japan is a very, very conformist, very... I don't want to say collectivist, but it's 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 much less individualist well, I mean, than America. Well, I mean, if you've seen, like, uh, the movie Gung Ho, like, it's making, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's very much about that. And you have, you know, these 
the, the image was that, you know, Japanese companies and they're going to make us do calisthenics any, and they're going to make us do calisthenics every morning and they're going to, you know, all of those type of things. And we're going to, you have the image of Japan being all these identically dressed salary men just in cubicles. You have that image of America these days, but that's a different story. But I think it, 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 it paints it paints the two shows in a very different light because yeah. Kirk made the decision and then expected his crew to use their talents and abilities to carry out his decision. Picard wants to hear what his talented and able yeah. crew thinks, and then it's he will make a decision rather, based on that. And uh, original series is top-down. This is bottom-up leadership. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it works, though, because oh. obviously, I mean, you know, and, and yeah. of course it works because it's <laughs> a TV show and they, they can't destroy the, sh- the ship at the end of the, each episode because that would be impossible. But it it also gets them back home, right? And, yeah. you know, what what does Picard do to get them back home? He tells the crew of the Enterprise to send well wishes to the Traveler. Yeah, essentially he's asking everybody to pray, which is a funny thing. Um, yeah. You know, which is the Traveler God, then. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. Well, the Traveler... <laughs> Picard is a very different captain because he's... I don't want to say he's a much less active captain, but, again, his role is of the boss. And yeah. he's he delegates. And so that is... He is, by necessity, going to be a much less active captain. And this is a captain who has who does not go on away teams who has to ask his second in command for permission to go on away teams it's so rare and you get the sense that you know picard couldn't take a direct interest uh, or direct control of the enterprise even if he wanted to right because you know if you think back to the original series if there was a problem in engineering kirk was going down to engineering if someone was beaming up to the ship kirk was going down to the transporter room you know it's actually funny that i that, that was something i noticed when kaczynski first comes in He's a little offended that the captain isn't there, and we're supposed to take that as a sign of arrogance, but at the same time, remember that Kirk was almost always in the transporter room when a guest beamed over, and he almost, Kaczynski reacts to it almost as if it's a breach of protocol, or as if if it's unusual. If every single captain stayed on the bridge and expected Kaczynski to come to him, no matter how arrogant he was, He's done this a million times before. He would know that that's what's done, that the captain does right. not go. Um, he's used to being having the red carpet rolled out for him. Um, and so you get the sense that already Picard is a little different from that. And when he does meet Picard, he's immediately starts throwing out all of these technical terms to him, assuming that the captain would immediately understand. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Kirk would have understood most of that. You know, Scotty would understand it better, but Kirk would get the gist. Picard looks clueless when he says that, and he even says, you know, what does that mean? Um, so I wonder then if that's not a sense that humanity has changed completely yet, but that the Federation has realized that this is the direction that humanity needs to go. And that, obviously, many, many people are going to have these qualities, particularly if they're in the Federation. So they give their coolest ship to the people who exemplify these values the most. In other words, I wonder if the crew of this Enterprise is still a little unusual for where humanity is at this point, but are being held up as role models. It could be. It could be. 
And I, I, I don't know that the evidence later on bears that out, but I think that's an interesting interpretation. But let's but let's talk about the Traveler and Wesley a little bit yes. because what I think is interesting here is, you know, in the last outpost, it was very much humanity has evolved, humanity is better, humanity is better than the Ferengi. They're more prepared. And in this episode, it's very much the Traveler saying, you guys aren't ready for this. You're not ready to be out here. This is a really, really... Um, not not harsh environment, but it's it's an environment where you need to know exactly what is going on. Yeah. Um, the traveler sort of tells Wesley not to say, "Well, thought and matter and and time yeah. are all the same thing." Whatever that means, it, it sounds good because it's a science fiction show, but it's kind of meaningless at the oh, same yeah. time. And what I think is interesting about <laughs> yeah, that I is. Love- yeah. Is it? It's implying that Wesley is kind of the next step in humanity's evolution in a way. At least which, philosophically. At least he's... philosophically, he's very smart, and this is the episode that establishes him again as a savant-level genius. And at the end of the episode, Picard takes the Traveler's advice to heart and yeah. makes him an acting ensign, puts him on the bridge of the Enterprise. It's in... gonna. It's gonna make him work like a dog too. Like yeah, yeah. I think he recognizes that Wesley needs to be treated like a bitch a little bit, you know, that in order to, he needs to be given a place to challenge and encourage him. But yeah, after the traveler's advice, he also realized, no, you have to make him work. You have to discipline him. He has, if he's undisciplined, he's going to be Kaczynski. Yeah. And I think, you know, and Kaczynski has peaked and Wesley could be limitless. And 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 just on an in-universe sort of story level, I think that this episode needed to happen because we needed a real explanation for why Wesley's there as yeah. as a main character. And we, this this provides a reason. I don't know that it's perhaps the best reason I mean, or I, the most satisfying reason. I but, don't know why. Certainly his sweaters aren't doing him any favors. Well, but I'm glad you if, mentioned the sweater because, my God. Oh, God. Like, who decided that I mean, was a good look? You know, like... The, the, the scene at the beginning where Dr. You know, the first scene when Dr. Crush was looking at all of the fabric, I got the sense she was intended to be a little fashionable at least, but she does not dress her son well. Hey, uh, for all we know, that's that's Wesley's independence rearing at its head. At least he's and... not wearing the Manny skirt, so... Um... When, when, when she leaves <laughs> at 9 o'clock in the morning to go down to sick bay... He unrolls his... his, his... He's, he's going over to the replicator and, like, asking for that sweater because <laughs> he really likes it. And every time... Every time his mother comes home at the end of a long shift oh my at God, sick is that bay, close? she like... sees that sweater and she throws it in the replicator and tells it to go away. And then the <laughs> next morning, Wesley puts it back on again because he really likes it. And this is that is... how clothes work in the Federation? Like you don't actually have a wardrobe, but they like print out a new one each time, and then you just kind of put it back, like and it recycles and just uses. Like, is that how that happens? I don't know. Maybe I really want to live in a post scarcity society. It would because, be nice, wouldn't it? You know, there's. A few new video games I want to buy, and I can't afford them right now. So, both scarce to society, I could just print them out. You wouldn't even need to print them out; they would just be available on the ship's computer. Wow! Yeah, the future is awesome. Um, I don't know. I I, I get why people hate Wesley, and I can see myself hating Wesley. But at least, at least for once, for once, for once, he didn't completely fuck everything up. That is true. He actually kind of was a little useful. I don't know if Troy was useful in this episode, but, you know, Wesley didn't fuck everything up. 
And Wesley is a problematic character, and they never no. fully, really figure him out as a character. And Again, I, 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 from what you said, he was Gene Roddenberry imagining himself as thirteen-year-old, you know, himself. And how fucking cool would that be to be on the bridge of the Enterprise? Oh my God, it's your ultimate middle school fantasy is being Wesley Crusher. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Did you like him when you were a kid? When you were first watching this. No. Well, I don't know because I, I, I... Were you jealous? Did you want to be Wesley? You can admit it. I... No, I don't think so. I, I don't really remember having much of an opinion of Wesley one way or the other. Yeah. that's so. See, that's surprising. Again, it seems like he would be a surrogate for that portion of the audience because obviously there were a ton of 13-year-old geeky boys who were watching this show at the time. And, you know, I'm surprised that... You know, it, it seems like he was, when I said the animated series, oh God, they're going to put a kid and a dog on the bridge of the Enterprise, like... This episode had a kid and a dog on the Enterprise He's the bridge. kid and the dog, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. All right, well, I think well, that'll do it for this week. I give it five warthogs. Yeah, I don't, I mean, it's like a four, I guess. It's, it's, it's definitely the best episode we've seen so far. I liked the Ran the Violin guy. Oh yeah, like I said, you know, and I was happy that they gave those kind of scenes as very quick moments with character, you know, one-off characters. Like, why we didn't need to see Doctor Crusher balleting around the room. I was fine that they gave it to a lady. Yeah. Well, next week we're going to cover Lonely Among Us and Justice. We'll I, see you then. 